Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Charles Murray, author of the new book, By the People, Rebuilding Liberty Without Permission. Charles is a political scientist, author, and libertarian, and the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's authored, authored several books, including most recently, ones we have covered at length, The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead, Do's and Don'ts of Right Behavior, Tough Thinking, Clear Writing, and Living a Good Life, and Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960-2010. to He's also well-known for, among other works, Losing Ground, and probably most famously, The Bell Curve. Charles, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Ben. Though I don't think it will be hard to convince our audience that we have strayed from the vision of the founders, and in particular, limited government, or as you define it in the book, Madisonian principles of governance, you make the case that solutions to what ails us are beyond the electoral and legislative processes, and you even say that the Constitution itself is broken. Explain that. I spend five chapters, actually, in the book uh, making a case that everything's hopeless with the political process. And let me start with the Constitution. I used to think if we had five Nino Scalia's or five Clarence Thomas's in the court that we could make a lot of progress. And I have been disabused of that notion for the following reason. There were a series of four or five Supreme Court decisions from 1937 to 1943 which changed, well, changed isn't the right word, unleashed the government from the uh, constrictions of the Constitution. It, it unleashed them from being stuck with the enumerated powers. It redefined the Commerce Clause to mean manufacturing and agriculture, even if it only has indi- uh, indirect effects on interstate commerce. Uh, then you had a lesser-known decision, but just as important, whereby in 1943, in a decision involving the National Broadcasting Company, the Supreme Court said, you know, the Congress doesn't have to supply a specific intelligible principle in its legislation, which more or less says to the regulatory agency, you're supposed to do A, B, and C. It can say, give us fair broadcasting rules, and that's good enough. Well, this unleashed the regulatory state to go out and make up whatever regulations they wanted. I won't go through a lot of the rest of the reasons, but I will give just a couple of quick statements. First, Our legal system is increasingly lawless. It just doesn't correspond to what we usually think of as the rule of law. And the other thing is that the political process is systemically corrupt. I don't mean we have more corrupt people in the government. I mean the system now operates in ways that are indistinguishable from the way that a kleptocracy operates. Pretty grim argument, but I think it's one that you can sustain. And and I think... Our audience would largely be sympathetic to that argument. We've talked with Mark Stein about how dire the situation is, and and I share your view, and I think our listeners do, about if we had all Clarence Thomases on the Supreme Court, and we had a Ted Cruz as president, and Ted Cruz controlled Congress, that it still wouldn't be able to deal with the problems that we have today. So you propose uh, an antidote to what ails us, or at least that starts to push in the right direction, given that the political process is broken. Right. And what you propose is civil disobedience. So what do you mean by civil disobedience? Well, Ben, maybe I should start by telling you how this whole thing came to me. The origin of the book was a guy who was a friend of ours who was getting in trouble with the regulatory state for idiotic reasons. He was being asked to do mutually contradictory things. He was being fined heavily, 
And he said to uh, the bureaucrat who was doing this, I'm going to fight this in court. And the guy said to him, you try that and we'll put you out of business. And he knew that was true. And, and I got so angry when my wife told me about this that I, I had an image. I'm not making this up. I had an image of a guy in a pinstripe suit, maybe riding on a horse, who comes up, taps the guy uh, from the government on the shoulder and says, we are taking this man's case. We are not going to charge him a penny. We are going to litigate this until you are sick of it. Uh, we are going to seek publicity that will embarrass you. And when you finally get your fine levied, we will pay it for him. And if you bother him again, we're going to come back again. That, in a nutshell, is what I want. Uh, I have two frameworks. Uh, one is what I call the Madison Fund, which would be a very large foundation funded probably by rich guys mostly, but for the benefit of ordinary small business people and homeowners. And it would take lots of those cases. It would put enormous pressure to bear on the enforcement resources of the regulatory state which aren't nearly as great as most people assume. I've, I could go on, but let me stop and let you break in and, and ask any more specific questions you want to know about this. <laughs> well, as you were explaining it, I was thinking to myself, maybe the way for you to sell this book to our ideological foes even though I don't think justice should ever be modified with another term, but as you are seeking to provide social justice for the little guy against the Leviathan state that's trying to crush him, in effect. That's, and you know what? There are lots of uh, moderate Democrats who vote for Democratic candidates who are also being pestered and hectored and harassed in just the same way by the regulatory state, and they are just as angry about it. I see a potential here for a growing disenchantment with the overreach of government that can cross some, cross some party lines. There's nothing you can do with the progressives, okay? <laughs> They're hopeless. But the, the moderate Democrats might be reached. Before we get a little bit into the nuts and bolts of how the Liberty Fund would work and how you see individuals making a dent in the massive administrative regulatory state, two questions. The first is, why civil disobedience over, say, a constitutional convention of the states that has been bandied about by some libertarians and conservatives? Well, I'm mindful of the remark that was made by uh, uh, Antonin Scalia with regard to a constitutional convention when he said he was against it. He said, this is a bad century to try to write a constitution. <laughs> and I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. But the main thing, Ben, is, is look. A constitutional convention requires a whole lot of things to fall into place that are going to be real hard to get to fall into place. The, the strategy I'm proposing requires only one thing, money. And that money is available. I'm amazed by, the book's been out three days. Uh, I'm amazed by the uh, number of people who want to get involved, including offering substantial sums of money. So what I'm proposing is not going to happen in the indefinite future. It's not maybe going to have an effect. I think we're talking about something that could get started soon and that could have an effect soon. I don't believe that about a constitutional convention. And there is a template for wealthy donors or even donors of moderate wealth. And who really cares so long as the money gets there? It could be a crowdfunded operation. Um, but but there there is a template for legal representation, including the Institute for Justice, among various other legal entities, what you envision is something much bigger, funded right. by, with the kind of heft of someone like, say, the Kochs or a Sheldon Adelson. So yeah. 
and and so my question is if you had such a large entity the first the skeptic would say well why wouldn't the government go after it immediately so how would you respond to that that's really interesting because oh let's say let's say the thing gets started and it works and you are getting pressure on the enforcement capability got to remember ben take something like osha people throughout the country have to prepare for the possibility of an osha inspection because it could happen and they can get hit with stiff fines if they haven't you know crossed every uh, T and dotted every I. So they, they waste a lot of time preparing for that inspection, but the actual number of inspections is very small. Uh, they only have about 2,200 inspectors, all told, and not very many lawyers. So it's not that you would take 100,000 cases to put OSHA's uh, enforcement capability in an overload situation. Much smaller one uh, number could do it. But it does have to be probably in the hundreds. Someplace like uh, Institute for Justice, they must, by dint of limited resources, take on very selected cases in which they hope they can get a decision that will be a precedent that affects a lot of other similar cases. I'm talking about people who are technically guilty of violating stupid regulations, who are going to be defended not because uh, they will win the case, but by pouring sugar into the enforcement, administrative state's enforcement capability. So it would be fairly large, much bigger scale than uh, EIJ or the Pacific Legal Foundation, but it could draw on their expertise uh, in setting itself up. Naturally, given the chilling effect of government going after people for all sorts of insane or ridiculous things, as you mentioned in the book, whether it's wetlands or all manner of other insane infractions that companies don't even know they're committing every single day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walk us through some of the regulations that you think are ripe for disobedience, given that chilling effect that we've seen. And then let's walk through how a case would work. And maybe you can use one of the examples from the book to sort of elucidate for our audience what you envision. Sure. By the way, I realized that I didn't fully answer your last question. Once all these cases are being uh, brought, yeah, OSHA is going to want to go to Congress and say, we need a lot more money to cope with this. That's going to be a really hard sell because Congress is aware of the hostility toward OSHA, uh, just as they're aware of the hostility toward the IRS. And it's going to be, OSHA's not going to get an extra $5 billion, especially from a Republican Congress, but probably not even a Democratic Congress, to, uh, to cope with this. Going to uh, uh, your question now about how is this going to work in practice? Uh, let's say that you have a person, well, let me give, give you the, the short-term scenario and the long-term scenario. The short-term scenario is, is simply that you start to treat the regulatory state as an insurable hazard, like uh, tornadoes or locusts, all right? And it's not just through the Madison Fund that I talked about. Think of it this way, Ben. Uh, take professional associations, such as, I use dentists in the book. Uh, the American Dental Association has very detailed and excellent standards of professional practice. So why doesn't the ADA establish Dental Shield, which is an insurance fund, and every dentist in the country who's a part of the ADA contributes 100 bucks, let's say, and in return the ADA makes this bargain with them. If you have dental practices that conform to our professional standards, 
we will come to your defense if the government comes after you for violating these silly things. And we will mount the defense even though you're technically guilty and we will reimburse your fine. So all at once you are free, if you're a dentist, from having to prepare for an OSHA inspection as long as you're running a safe dental practice. Uh, that is the short-term effect of what I'm talking about. It, it lifts that burden in a practical sense. But in another sense, we may have a longer term. We may get from the Supreme Court a subtle but really important change in interpretation. And that is to say, these cases are going to be saying of the enforcement of a regulation, this is idiotic. Specific example. Uh, and I got this, by the way, from uh, Philip Howard, who's written some wonderful books about this sort of thing. Uh, there was this brick-making company in Pennsylvania that was fined because they did not have the, a sign saying poison on a shed on the property. Inside that shed was ordinary beach sand. And the reason they, they needed a poison sign is because uh, somebody in their infinite wisdom has determined that in certain grinding operations, the dust from beach sand might cause certain kinds of rep respiratory problems, none of which applies to anything that's going on in the brick company. Sooner or later, when you have a bunch of cases being fought, not saying that get rid of the regulation, but saying the enforcement was idiotic, the Supreme Court may take the existing language for overturning regulatory decisions. That language is arbitrary or capricious or an abuse of discretion and start to apply it to the enforcement of regulations, not their creation. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the legalese here, but right now they don't apply arbitrary and capricious to the mode of enforcement. If they start to do that, and if you have a drumbeat of cases that are all making the same point, this is idiotic, they might. The whole basis for enforcing regulations has undergone a sea change that uh, will, will undercut the ability of the regulatory state to have its way. Yeah, and you go into great depth in the book and I think make a very compelling argument that, well, first of all, I mean, everything the administrative state does is arbitrary and capricious, <laughs> number, <laughs> number one. <laughs> However, it, no, Ben, I'll just and let me interject this, because this is a question I, of course, get from less sympathetic questioners than you. They say, do you, you know, are you in favor of, of uh, dangerous workplaces and, and pollution and all that? No, I'm not in favor of that. Uh, you know, when you have a regulation which says, Tunnels in coal mines should have adequate shoring of the walls of the coal mine. That doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, and ne neither do, do EPA rules which say you can't have a factory which is belching noxious smoke that spreads all over the countryside. That is a classic violation of a public good whereby they are having external effects. Those kinds of regulations actually are constitutional. Um, it's the ones where they're trying to micromanage everything. And those are where they get so arbitrary, so capricious. You have these guys in Washington who are telling people how to do their work, and they haven't a clue about what doing that job is like on the ground. Before we get to an argument that maybe higher courts consider about that arbitrary and capricious standard, not just applying to the regulation, but the enforcement of that regulation, 
there is a question of, well, if you have a government where the leader of our justice system is an Eric Holder or a Loretta Lynch, and they use their prosecutorial discretion to tyrannically go after political opponents in a worst case scenario, and we've certainly seen that during the Obama administration. How do you have confidence or how would you give confidence to those who may be sympathetic to your plan but would be scared about being made martyrs given who is running our justice system? Well, there's no doubt about it. There are going to have to be some people with some spine. Look, I will tell you, I have been especially careful with my taxes. the last few years. By that, I don't mean that I haven't always, good faith, paid my taxes. I say I I am leaning over backwards to have any vulnerability on my taxes ever since I started working on that book. And why? Because I have a very strong sense that once this book has come out, I will be audited next year. And that indicates, I mean, that's a corrupt, I'm assuming corruption in the IRS, in my own behavior. So part of me says, I sympathize what you say, um, you got to have people with, if you'll pardon the expression, balls, who will, who are willing to put themselves at some risk uh, to make this happen. We have people like that. We have people like that. The Sacketts in the famous Supreme Court case that they fought the EPA, they showed a great deal of courage in pursuing that. I think there are enough people who will. And they fought the EPA over wetlands regulations and uh, were. The, the federal government effectively tried to chill them by saying, you either take our settlement or we'll bankrupt you in court, and they yep. fought it. They fought they it. Fought it. Uh, I would like to say that they won uh, the right to build their house on their piece of land, which was in no way wetlands. Sadly, the victory they won was the right to contest the EPA's action without accumulating potential fines of millions of dollars before they could get their day uh, in court. I mean, they, got, they won a very narrow procedural victory, but they did win it. And you know what? The EPA, EPA is still after the Sacketts on the, on the main question of whether they can build their house. It is outrageous. And I, and I just wanted to comment on another outrage since you uh, discussed your taxes. I just wanted to commend you for preempting Harry Reid so there will be no questions on the Senate floor about Charles Murray's tax returns. <laughs> I wish I could uh, uh, have the IRS decide that it will be pointless to come after me, but I have no confidence that the, the confidence that that's true. And it might be good for your book sales. That, that would be the other element of it. Well, <laughs> yeah. if, if they do uh, come after you. <laughs> That's the bright side. (laughs) So shifting a little bit, in the latter part of your book, since you start at sort of the depressing side of here's where America is today, you talk about the bright side of where things are going and you write more as a social scientist. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how the diversity that we're seeing today culturally parallels in some respects historical episodes that we've seen, uh, whether it was the the 19th century or uh, mid-century America. One question on that, I think that there's definitely a case to be made that we've had similar diversity culturally as in the past, but one pushback would be in the past, we had a shared sense of common values, principles, morals, and a 
relatively common view of the what the proper size and scope of government should be. And I would argue that we really don't have that today. So how would you respond to that? Well, I think you're right. And, and when I'm talking about diversity, then, well, I go back to the beginning of the book. I say, I don't know how to restore the American project in its original form. And its original form did involve a common understanding about liberty, for example. But we can restore a lot of its most important aspects in a new incarnation. And with regard to diversity, the new incarnation is this. Okay, we don't all share the same values anymore, but we are going to use this to our advantage now by, by having various groups from various political parts of the spectrum who now want to be left alone by the federal government in ways that they didn't used to. Let's take the famous issue of states' rights. Uh, until a few years ago, anybody who talked about states' rights was immediately pilloried by the left as being just a bunch of uh, old-fashioned racist uh, segregationists in disguise who want the ability to reimpose the bad old days. The, the, the principal case for states' rights was never taken seriously. Guess what? Washington State and uh, Colorado have passed state laws legalizing the uh, recreational use of marijuana, which, by the way, are plainly unconstitutional. Uh, but, but this is from the left, where you have a culture that wants to be left alone by the federal government. And there, that also is true on, this, on the city level. You know, Portland, Oregon wants to have the culture that Portland, Oregon, for whatever reasons, treasures. This, this provides a, a whole new source of political support for get the federal government out of, our, uh, out of our face as we go about trying to live our lives. The same kind of thing happens, uh, Ben, with, uh, you could push back at me. I'll, I'll offer a pushback that I've heard already. Very reasonable saying, we already have too much litigation, and you want to get all these lawyers doing more litigation. Yeah, if, if I could wave a wand and have my ideal system, it would have lots less work for lawyers. We've got to work with what we've got. We have been given a legal system that permits almost endless um, uh, extension of litigation. All right, as long as that's what we're stuck with, let's start using that as a weapon only directed against the regulatory state. So in lots of ways, Ben, <clears throat> I'm saying it's a new incarnation. It's not going to be the Madisonian slash Jeffersonian American project, but we can retrieve a whole lot of our day-to-day -day liberty. And to your point, we have to fight fire with fire. The, the other side uh, will attack us through lawfare and through every other possible yeah. means. So it, it makes total sense, uh, and I'm sure our audience would agree, that you have to go at them with every on every possible avenue with every weapon you've got. Yep, uh, that's that's my attitude. What are some of the things that should give liberty-minded Americans optimism that we have tools going our way? You talk about technology, and I really like the idea that you present of a, a hypothetical show where you profile individuals who are attacked <laughs> by government. I think that's something the Blaze should certainly look into. Uh, <laughs> yes. What are, what are some of the vehicles that we have? Well, I'm glad that we get, we're getting to that because uh, I'm afraid after the first five chapters of the book, you're going to have a lot of suicidal readers, uh, people who, but, who love liber limited government. But the last part says, you know what? Even though in some ways it's the worst of times, in others it's the best of times. And let's take the uh, technology as, as an example. If you get down to it, 
1900, when they first started to say uh, there has to be government inspection of meat, there was really a strong rationale for that because consumers did not have access to a lot of information about what they were eating and, and it was tough, tough to come by. And there was a rationalization for saying you have to have the government do that. That's no longer true. <laughs> we live in an information age where we have access to so much information that if you got rid of government inspection of meat tomorrow, uh, believe me, Safeway is way too smart to try to start selling contaminated meat the day after tomorrow. And in fact, they would be touting their own much tougher uh, inspection uh, standards uh, as an advertising ploy. But here's uh, the, even the broader ways in which technology can make a huge difference. Uber. Uh, I'm sure that most of the audience knows of Uber or have used it. Uber, a, a uh, voluntary sort of taxi service, but one in which people communicate with each other directly and bypass the taxi cartel. Uber doesn't go to the city council of uh, Chicago and say, please let us uh, join the cartel that you formed with the taxi company and let us provide our service. Uber just moves in, provides the service. By the time the government reacts, Uber's already so popular that it's hard to get rid of. And furthermore, Uber has deep pockets. You're not talking about somebody the city government can cow. Uber is one example of a whole bunch of things which, Ben, I think represent the future. In one sense, the future is depressing because we're going to continue to have a big, overweening government, kind of flaccid and lazy and uh, overbearing, sclerotic, but increasingly it's going to be sitting there and we will be wasting money supporting it, but we can work around it. Already people that have a lot of money work around an amazing number of the government's uh, uh, restrictions on liberty. But I'm saying a lot of those workarounds will become much more available to people of, of normal means. I, it's impossible for me to believe that 200 years from now, when today's technology will look primitive compared to information technology then, when we will have much greater national wealth uh, uh, in all likelihood, I just can't believe that 200 years from now, we will still think that the best way to run society is by having billions of millions of bureaucrats with their rules micromanaging our lives. Long term, I'm really optimistic. I don't want to end with a question on a negative note, so I'll allow you to, to, to try to lay out for us a, a positive view of what is going to happen. But obviously in all of this, uh, one of the issues we haven't really touched on, but you as a so, as a social scientist, I'm sure think about uh, you know to a to a very large extent and and touch upon in in coming apart and elsewhere, is we've had all of this unrest in Baltimore, in Ferguson, in other large urban areas, primarily black and primarily democratic areas of America, and these constituencies have basically been destroyed, correlating with. 50 years of leftist policies. And you would think that the end result of that would be a turn against government authority. And maybe you see that against the police in power. But you don't see that same sort of sentiment when it comes to questioning whether or not the welfare state and the Great Society programs and all the rest of it maybe are destroying individual lives and contributing to the perpetuation of dependency and all the other problems that you see uh, in urban areas across the country. So 
do you see a potential for these constituencies to come around to a pro-liberty perspective? Or do you think that we're going to continue to have societal clashes and social unrest while we try to get back to a liberty-oriented government? I have no short-term optimism on this at all. Um, I, I do not see any broad understanding on the part of inner-city communities that they have been victims of, of terrible public policy. So, uh, it, as far as I'm concerned, what we need to be doing now is offering an opportunity for those who do want to escape that culture to do so. And so, it, basically, we're saying there may not be very many of you <clears throat> that want out from under this rock, but those of you who do, we're going to do our best to lift the rock and, and let you out. And so, in that sense, um, the kinds of things that my, my legal funds are going to be doing are going to be on behalf of small uh, African-American business people. They're going to be on behalf of, of uh, uh, African-American and Latino uh, homeowners who are as oppressed by the federal government as anybody else. There should be sort of a, an emphatic uh, statement by the kinds of activities I'm proposing that we are talking about oppression that occurs across the board and we're going to provide help across the board. But having said that, uh, there is a deep-rooted problem of getting anybody, forget about whether they're in a city or whether they are rural whites or the rest, people who have acquired a set of benefits, however destructive they may be, it's really hard to get them to say, oh, please stop victimizing us with these benefits, even, though, even when they sense that they're bad. So you have succeeded in asking a final question where uh, uh, I don't see any short-term optimism. I have another plan for dealing with these, which I think could uh, uh, go a long way toward revitalizing civil society. That's in a book called In Our Hands, where I propose to replace the entire welfare state uh, with a guaranteed basic income. But... That's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> we've been speaking with Charles Murray, and we've been discussing his new book, which I urge all of our listeners to pick up. It's uh, an interestingly radical but practical book from a libertarian social scientist, and rarely do you see people who think like Charles Murray does, who actually propose practical plans and put it out on paper and fight for, for their ideas uh, in the War of Ideas. The name of the book is By the People, Rebuilding Liberty Without Permission. Thanks for speaking with us, Charles. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Ben. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.